You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Guys, good to see you. How are we doing? Fantastic. Good to see everybody. Uh, Almost done with Galatians. Anybody sad about that? Yeah. Okay, good. That was a trick question. Um, (laughs) No, it's been so good. And I hope it's not like, oh, our church isn't teaching Galatians. Galatians, Let's never read it again. Like, hopefully now we have good understanding and better uh, understanding of some of the language and some of the things that Paul brings up. So then now, diving back into Galatians and teaching it and walking through it with a friend or in discipleship or some kind of capacity, we we have more tools in our toolbox now to kind of help build that out. So hopefully it's good. I'm really excited for what's coming next, Um, but we're in the last chapter, chapter six. Um, And again, the chapters are all just our own breakdown, right? It's kind of that English uh, language thing, but it really was just one full letter. So he's kind of coming to the argument. Paul is coming the, art, the, the ending of his arguments and what he's been trying to do. So, but there's a lot to get into it, so I want to go. But um, as a way of kind of recap a little bit, so we can kind of see why we're at the place that we are, Paul has been addressing these arguments and disagreements within the church in this area of what it looks like to be a follower of God, which is very relevant to us today and has been for all generations. What does this new Christianity look like now after what Jesus did? Does it look now like the Jewish faith has always looked? And should we do that? Should it look like something different now that what the Gentiles are used to, what they should bring to the table? Who can enter into this new kingdom of God now through Jesus Christ? And Paul's been building this case that those are all great questions, right? But some of the answers to those questions are come with an obvious, the obvious nature of a lifestyle change and a lifestyle of someone who is truly surrendered to Christ and has this new Holy Spirit within them. Now, Paul argued in chapter one, there's no other gospel. They were hearing some other things of like, well, I think this is a gospel. I think this is a gospel. Says there's no other gospel than the one that Jesus Christ revealed, that man could never gain righteousness on their own due to their sin. So God, out of love, sent his son to atone for that sin so that in his resurrected life, there, there would be this new life in anyone who'd surrender to them and they could live as new creations in Christ. They don't have to do anything like circumcision, eating kosher, kind of all these rules, right? Or look a certain way or change their behavior before they come to Christ. He and he alone makes them into a new creation. But this new creation now has new desires, right? Not desires of the flesh, but these new desires of the spirit that was placed inside them. This is why the old self of flesh needed to be cut away or cut off. Paul puts it so brilliantly in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, so good. This cutting off of the old self, putting on the new life that only Christ could produce in us through the Spirit. So then the question still kind of remains. That's the new identity of the Christian. But now how does one live that out while still in the flesh? Is it now to turn back to the law and follow those rules and statutes? And in chapter 3, Paul first reminded them that they're no longer under the curse of the law, 
because of the curse that Christ became for them. Then he reminds the Galatian church that this whole thing, this new way of following God, is not what they have created. This isn't just a new thing that they just thought up. But this was always the intent. This is actually the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham long time ago that God would be a God of a people who follow him with their whole hearts, minds, souls, and strength. So the first step to living into this new creation life, according to Paul in Galatians, is to have faith that in Christ they are now fully children of promise. So they can trust that God is their God and put their hope in him. And this includes everyone who believes, not because of heritage, ethnicity, social standing, but this includes anyone into this great family of God. Because Paul said this in chapter 3, because now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this should be so encouraging to the people. And the next step is to understand that that promise to be a united family of blessing, to then be a blessing, and he writes in chapter 4, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Part of faith in God is not turning back to the things they used to put their faith in. In the law, in idols, in themselves, those weak and worthless principles of the world that have been made into these ultimate things. And Paul gives this example in chapter 4 of Abraham and Sarah, the kind of the parents of this great faith, who through, though they wanted to have faith, they kind of faltered in their, in their own beliefs and took matters into their own hands by having a baby outside of God's intended promise. Then when the son of promise was born, there had these kind of two lines, right? One of promise, the free woman, if you remember that passage, and one of man-made effort, the slave woman. And Paul concludes to anyone in Christ to have this confidence in their faith. Chapter 4, verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, so far, what it means to be a Christian is faith and hope that God has done what he'd said he'd do, is doing what he'd said he'd do, and so there can be trust that he will do what he says he'll do. But in chapter 5, Paul gets a little more practical, right? He's kind of building up this argument, this historical stuff. He gets a little practical. This faith and hope in a good God who will do what he says he'll do should spark a different lifestyle. Not a lifestyle of following rules or some religious obligations, but a lifestyle of real and true freedom. The freedom to actually realize that sin no longer has a hold or claim to those who are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So even though Christians are still physical on earth, in the flesh, there is a freedom that this isn't our eternal state, this isn't our identity, and this isn't our eternal home, right? Christians are now yoked, connected like branches to a tree, to something and someone so much more, the Spirit of God. Paul encourages chapter 5, verse 5, For the, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
right? This spirit is the marker of this new creation life. The spirit in the Christian is the marker of this new thing, these new desires. And it's through the surrender of the person to the spirit within them to produce in them what they could never produce themselves. And this is the on earth as it is in heaven potential. Chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Like these are what the Christian, like surrendered to the Spirit within them, this is what the Christian life should look like and be the witness to the world. But what about this kind of pull of the flesh, right? It's so strong and ever-present. And Paul is reminding the church how much more, if you feel the pull of the flesh, how much more so should the pull of God's Spirit within you? These are not equal powers. This is the Spirit of God we're talking about. This is not a cosmic struggle. Jesus won on the cross. So hear these words and believe they are true. Chapter 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do we believe that? Did the church in Galatia believe that? You have to hear those words, internalize them. Right, the Christians in Galatia had to ask this question. It's still the question for us today. Do we believe that? If we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a really cool bumper sticker or a carved wagon for them. I don't know. But is that a real-life truth that is believed? We all have to ask that question. And this is where Paul moves to conclude his letter, still in this kind of pastoral way of getting practical, of encouraging the church this is not about behavior modification, right? These aren't lists of do's and don'ts, right? This is not about a certain way or making, the, making sure the church looks the way you want it. The point is surrender because none of this happened without God. Jesus on the cross is our atonement. Jesus' resurrection is our new life. The spirit within us is the guarantor and marker of that new life. So all we can do is surrender our life to something so much bigger and greater than ourselves. So right after Paul speaks about the beautiful, available fruits that the Spirit wants to produce in his people, he concludes in chapter 5, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now right after an encouraging fruits of the Spirit, it might feel like, why did he say that? It's interesting, when you, when you read about the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and also in Paul's day, the question wasn't, do you follow God's commandments and statutes? The question was, who was doing it best, right? Who was doing it better than someone else? It was more like this competition to who could be the greatest in the kingdom, right? But this brings it back to works-based righteousness because it's presenting to God the resume of, look how holy I am for you, right? Which kind of dismisses the perfection of Christ, and this is not the point. Paul says this leads to conceit, provoking one another, even envying one another, and these are not in, of the Spirit. And Paul understands, like even though this is included in our Scripture, this is our canon of Scripture, Paul understands he's writing to humans, struggling, and still struggling with the flesh. He does not want them to lose hope. So now he moves into our passage today. He moves a bit from the abstract theology and continues with some concrete situations that is the reality of the Spirit at work in and through his people that should be building up in love rather than competition. So let's begin. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So brothers, anytime brothers is used, it's, it's talking to Christians. It's talking to the church, right? So we're talking Christians caught in sin. Okay, he understands the struggle, but also there's this strange encouragement right here that Christians sin. <laughs> it might sound weird, like, like there's this weird feeling from the world that Christians think they are better than other people, like we are sinless, right? I've always appreciated the saying, and there's various quotes, it's kind of hard to know who to attribute it to, but that the church is not a museum of perfect people, but a hospital for those who want to be well. You heard this before? The hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And I say amen to that, right? Christians are not without sin. It's just that they confess their sin to one who is faithful and just to forgive them, right? Their sin has been atoned for. So there's this kind of holy kind of guilt and acknowledgement of what was sin and an understanding that this sin will only lead to death. So there's this re-repentance, not for righteousness because they already have that in Christ, but of a recommitment to stand on the way of God that leads to life. And this is so important and good. If Christians sinned, didn't mind it, in fact loved it and desired to keep doing it, then it's hard to believe there's a true surrender to Jesus as Lord and the Spirit within them. But at the end of the day, only Jesus can judge that. And I think that is why Paul quickly moves on to what we can try to do. And spoiler alert, it's not to judge everybody. It's restoration. If a brother is caught in their sin, heavy laden, burned out, tired, exhausted in their own battle with fleshly desires, wants to change but doesn't know how, what does Paul say? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now that phrase, you who are spiritual, that this isn't a hierarchy, okay? This isn't like, see those horrible Christians, how could they do that? I'm so mature, let me help you. Those who are spiritual should also be those who understand that our identity is in the Spirit, and that is where the real struggle is, as Paul would write later in the Ephesians church. Some of you have heard this before, Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle. So for those who are spiritual, they can look at a brother and not try to make them feel bad for the way sin has eked its way out in their life, but to have compassion and a burden for that person's war with sin and the flesh. To see someone struggling, someone, as Jesus called it, who is poor in spirit. To see someone not as a failure, but someone who has truly come to the end of their willpower and the totality of their own strength, and it's not enough to overcome it. Right, this is where the gentleness comes in. Because instead of heaping the you should be betters or don't you knows, the Bible says, or whatever, there's the grace of Jesus Christ. There's the power of God and the weakness of his followers. There's the fruits belonging to the Spirit that is at work in and through his children. And that what it mean, that's what it means to be someone who is spiritual. It's someone bringing themselves and others back to their identity in Christ Jesus. It's reminding people that they didn't save themselves in the first place, so why are they trying so hard to do so now? Come back to Jesus. Repent and turn from trying to find your own peace in worthless things and find it in Jesus as Lord. 
And this does not mean just someone who has knowledge of higher things or some tips to a better life using spiritual matters kind of thing. When Paul says those who are spiritual should restore, when he says this, interestingly, the verb used in restore, it's not the classic scripture word for restoration, which usually means to bring back to its former state. Okay, that's what we mean more of that kind of thing. But he uses actually a medical term. The term is katarizo, which is used for mending a broken bone. It means that the brokenness is not ignored or exposed for further injury, but it's actually set right and mended so that can be the path back to optimal health. And oftentimes, if you've ever had a bone reset, it's painful. It's hard. It's not an easy thing to do, but it is in the long run so much better. And that's all encouraging, but it's interesting what Paul says next, still in verse 1 of chapter 6. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Right? This is the example of that real spiritual battle that's going on. There's very real danger of good spiritual things because it attracts the enemy who are anti-spirit, anti-Christ. Often when there's spiritual success for the kingdom of God, there is rage and aggression from the enemy. If you've ever experienced um, being a part of restoring someone like Paul is talking about, but then you get hit with this overwhelming sense of pride, how awesome you are, right? <laughs> or when, when seeing someone struggle with something you, you also struggle with, there's the opportunity to present yourself better or healed. Oh, I used to struggle with that from that struggle or even secretly desire to give into that sin because now it doesn't sound so bad anymore. Paul's encouraging and warning, just don't lose sight that you also once were in great and complete need of restoration. And God is now using you to be that restoration for someone else, to mend the brokenness that you know so well. This should lead all parties involved back to their identity in God. Now Paul moves to a second example, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Restoration is not just a one-time event, right? If someone has been reconciled to Christ, they are not just in right standing with God because of Christ. They are now a part of a family, right? A family of God in this new kingdom life. Bearing one another's burdens is the new law, the way of Christ that he gave his followers. Going back to the Gospel of John, Jesus said this to his followers, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Paul, referencing this back in chapter 5 in Galatians, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, Jesus bore our greatest burden on the cross, the burden we could never carry ourselves, and displayed perfect, unconditional, and self-sacrificing love by laying his life down. Jesus was about removing that burden. But Paul here, he might be throwing a dig back. Remember the Judaizers that are coming and trying to tell the Galatian church they need to look like them? Kind of might be trying to throw a dig at them, that they are trying to influence the Galatian church by putting the burdens back on the people. And this is literally antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These God-fearing Jews and Gentiles Paul is writing to cannot truly bear one another's burdens unless they have a full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless they've realized their sin, their inability to save themselves, confess their need for a Savior, and seen that Savior in Jesus as Lord. 
This is what leads to the humble heart and the gentle spirit that receives the spirit that changes from the inside and out. And there is no spiritual hierarchy here. Verse 3, I love it how Paul just is very blunt. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul is not trying to tear down Christians here, but more put them in their place. And that place is the foot of the cross. If you restore someone from their sin, you did not just become Jesus to them. You showed them Jesus and can praise Jesus and God's work in their life. But as Paul says, verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Anyone really confused by that sentence? Feels kind of weird, right? Even that, what is the line? You, uh, to boast will be in himself alone. Have you ever been to Awana's or, or youth group and they're like, you should boast in yourself alone? Have you ever heard that? <laughs> like, it's not usually a thing, right? Let's, let's cut. It can get a little confusing. But connecting this verse back to verse 2 starts to paint a picture. Paul uses these two words. He uses the word burden and load. And kind of as a gifted wordsmith, he uses them purposefully because they're two different words. So burden, it means heavy weight. This heavy, heavy weight. Load means pack or like a backpack type thing. So Paul is making a distinction here between the way we bear each other's burdens, weights in life, are by realizing we all have our own load, right? We all have our own pack. We all carry a pack around daily, but some burdens within the pack are heavier than others in life. No one is pack less, and no one can carry another person's pack because this is the very nature of who they are, but they can surround those with heavier burdens and be supportive. Not in an I'm better kind of way, but in a building up in love kind of way. And as we've seen it in context, Paul is warning to be careful not to boast in yourself, because that's antithetical to what we've been reading this whole time, but this is against a warning of comparison. Right? One of the traps of the Christian that Paul sees is that the similar of the religious leaders of old, the fleshly temptation of comparison within the community of who is doing more spiritual work than others, thus elevating themselves or being elevated to a higher spiritual position. In today's context, we see this happen in churches and parachurch organizations, right? Pastors or teachers or someone influential kind of rises to a position where they have more followers than Jesus and are placed on these pedestals for all to gawk at, right? We've either experienced that or we know it, right? Or the opposite, where a spiritual leader is so burned out because they compare themselves to others who seem to be doing so much more for the kingdom and are having this success with their fleshly desires, and it's, it's this crushing weight that robs the leader of any joy or perception of how God is using them differently but equally. And Paul is saying each Christian is fully responsible for that mission of love and the way of Jesus for their areas of influence. And as we help one another to not forget that they bear their own brokenness, but that we are not greater than one another if you have a lighter burden. Now we move into the, the second concrete area in which Paul shows the work of the Spirit within the community, not through some form of radical individualism, but through those who are submitting themselves to teachers who have been taught themselves. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he also will reap. Bless you. 
Paul is actually using financial language here, which is fascinating. Don't worry, this isn't a giving talk. Um, But in reference to the riches of teaching, learning in God's word as the treasure, right? Paul uses financial investment language. What one puts in will grow and be multiplied in its reward. But when someone else is the one who puts in while you benefit, then the proper honor is to go back and share with the one who sowed in the first place. That can be financially, that can be encouragement, it can be what he said, all good things. Even though he's using financial language, he's also using this agricultural setting. Sowing and reaping are farming terms. But it's not just in sustenance, it's also in this riches language. We get hospitality today, but especially in Paul's day, if someone benefits greatly in their crop, it is not just for personal hoarding and gain, but now for the generous blessing to the community. And basically, it seems Paul is just saying when you benefit from someone else's teachings, leadings, or whatever it is in spiritual matters, don't hoard it for yourself, but share in the blessing with the one who discipled you, who taught with you in the first place for mutual encouragement, and then use what you've learned for the building up of the body of Christ in love. And there's this kind of culture today not always with young people, it happens in all generations, but to kind of desire minimal sow for maximum reap, okay? Yeah, doesn't that sound nice, right? (laughs) Meaning, what's the least amount of work I can do for the most amount of reward, amen? (laughs) This may work to make money in this day and age, right? We've seen sometimes, but this is not how it works with the spiritual life. God will not be mocked. This is not the like religious hokey pokey, right? You don't put yourself in and out and then again, you know, it's not that this is about the quality of the seed you are planting. What is sowed is what will be reaped. You know, you sow a, a, a marble, for example, it's shiny. It looks good. It's very round, very cool, right? What will it produce? Nothing, right? Put that in the ground, nothing. But at the same time, sowing a pumpkin seed Hoping and wanting apples is also disappointing, right? So God knows what you're sowing. You can't fake it. You can't mock God. God is the only reason that this thing will produce and grow. So Paul warns this, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The flesh can't help but be corrupted by sin. That's what the flesh is. So anything invested in the flesh, even when maybe it's thought to be a spiritual thing, will come out with some level of fleshly corruption. But the spirit, by his nature, is good and working towards eternal life. This is the great hope that can sustain a believer at the hard work of surrendering to a life marked by love, And not just living for self is sowing to the Spirit. And there's a greater reward than anything that could be gained here on earth. And this goes back to the previous passage of the fruits of the Spirit. Using sow and reap and fruit, it's all these words of growth over time, right? This is spiritual maturity, surrendered growth over time. What we are sowing to the Spirit is like planting seeds and then seeing the great gardener God curate and grow in us what we could never do ourselves. This takes time and faith that it's happening even when we cannot see it. There's so much in the farming 
analogies that happens underground before we ever see anything, right? The praise be to God that there are blessings here on earth as well in the meantime. This is why I think Paul can write so freely, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Like this is the charge from Paul. Don't give up because what is invested in the kingdom of heaven is worth it and worth the weight. And this is the investment, the sowing in love. Do good to everyone, including non-believers, but this should not be at the exclusion of Christians, especially those of the household of faith, is what he says. And sometimes that's actually harder, isn't it? It's actually harder sometimes than to love people outside of kind of the household of faith, people inside the household of faith. There's a lot more division and fighting inside, just like a family, right? I appreciate Paul's use of this language of sowing and reaping. In in Western culture, we want results and we want them now, right? We want our investments to return and to return full and quickly. But there are four seasons in a year, right? There are growth seasons, seasons for death, seasons for rest, silent seasons, Sowing in a season of growth and then living through a season of death can be so defeating. But when there seems to be no results and it kind of destroys the momentum to want to sow, and again and again, we have to realize these seasons we're talking about are not physical but spiritual, right? This brings a whole new world. What is sowed in the Spirit is reaped by the Spirit on the Spirit's terms and the Spirit's timing. We don't rush God with our urgency, but our urgency should be to sow generously so that in God's perfect timing there is reaping, not for ourselves, but for the gain of the kingdom. And this is what takes faith, that this is all working. You can bet there were Galatians in their churches wondering when this was all going to make sense, when their doing good out of their surrender to God was actually going to pay off. And some of us here are in that same spot. Right? Some of us have been a Christians for what feels like forever, and some kind of a shorter time. Either way, we're in a spiritual, if you're in a spiritual season of what seems like no growth, but only death, allow Paul's words in our scriptures to wash over us. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give That giving up is not because of our own efforts, but it's not giving up the firm conviction that God is alive and active. This is not a do more sermon, right? This is a surrender, right? If you feel like your burden is great and greater now in this season than you can handle, it's not time to give in. It's time to press in, press into community, press into faith that the Spirit is at work in and through you. Press into the habits that we looked at last week that are sowing to the Spirit to produce what only the Spirit can produce in us, and ultimately to press into Jesus as our Lord. Next week, we're going to land the plane in Galatians, finish up this letter. We're going to finish up the last few final words from Paul, and then as this is a letter, we're going to go back, and now that we understand a little bit more, to read the thing in its entirety But for today, I think it's really important to pause and claim our faith that Jesus is Lord. At the end of the day, Paul can argue all he wants for the people to understand good theology. He wrote all the letters. 
you could think of to understand this stuff, to try to explain what this following Jesus thing is. But it does only matter for those who want to follow Jesus, for those who acknowledge their insurmountable sin and believe Jesus is Lord, is the, and as Lord, is the only way, truth, and the life, and faithful to forgive our sins. And we've learned so much from the Galatians, but we can't make this an academic study. You can't, you can't just take those lists and say, okay, what does it mean to sow this? What does it mean to not do this, right? This is not just an academic study. This has to hit us in our real, everyday surrender. This is what the church needs to be about in its application. Our identity rooted in Jesus Christ as Lord, our surrender to the Spirit to grow in us the fruits we could not produce on our own, so we can be of spiritual things and carry one another's burdens. This is a community of pack-wielding, Jesus-following, burden helpers. Put that on a (laughs) t-shirt, right? And this is beautiful. This is the church, right? This is real life, and this is our real faith. We have hope and expectation that when these things are sowed in this way, and trust and hope and faith that God is working so much more than we even see, right? When we see this and God is at work, and will make good on his promises of restoration in us as a people in Albany as he is restoring Albany, as he's restoring his people, and in the world as we see God's kingdom here as it is in heaven. So church, that's what we do today, right? In our surrender, that's why we always talk about our responses. That's why we always talk about how we're going to reconnect, recommit, no matter how your week went. We're not, if you're a Christian, it's not to get re-righteous, right? We have that in Christ Jesus, but it's to say, God, I want to surrender more of my life to you. How much more can I give? Lord Spirit, will you show me the ways I'm actually holding back from you? And I'm holding some for myself. I'm still sowing to the flesh. I'm still trying to desire or get out of this thing, these worthless principles of the world that Paul calls them. I'm still wanting and desiring and grabbing on, and he says, let go. Let go of that. Come to me when you're weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he says, church, you are to be that as well. Just as I have been the example of love, you are to love one another. So that's why today, as a community together, we can take our questions, our doubts, our burdens, right, our joys, all of the things that encompass, uh, encompass our worship to Jesus in gratitude and surrender. And I want to walk through these. You guys know what we do, but w- those words up there, the reason we say it every single week is because repetition is formation. Okay, we, we sing not because we're supposed to, but because there's something about it. That when we praise our God, especially, you read in the scriptures all the time, people when they're in jail, like Peter's in jail, He's in a rough time. What does he do? He sings, right? There's something that happens, this gratitude that happens when we just sing and proclaim and kind of herald Jesus as king, right? Prayer, that's not just something up there because it's like, oh, we should do that, right? That's huge. That's massive. Praying together, praying as a community, one voice raising up to God. Giving, right? Giving, especially in our culture, that's, that's the kind of thing we hoard. That's the kind of thing we keep, right? But for the blessing of the community, saying, hey, if we all give a little bit, what can we do in the city? What can we do in the community? How can we bless people, right? And then, of course, receiving. We can't, none of this matters if Jesus is not Lord, if Jesus did not resurrect. If he died on the cross, that's huge, atoning for our sins, but it's the resurrection that gives us new lives. 
Jesus was not just a prophet who was martyred, right? He is Lord who reigns and reigns today. And that's why we go to communion. And when you take the little cracker and grape juice, it's, it seems silly, right? But the profoundness of saying, Lord, like your broken body for me, there's your blood for me that washes me white as snow. That's something I could never do. And when we go, there's a remembrance of Jesus. You are Lord and we are your people. So let's be a people marked by that, okay? I'm going to pray and let's worship our God well today.